is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Hello again, and welcome along to Enter Sad Men. Uh, my name's Steve. With me are my, my, my two hombres, um, Mark and Rich, um, ready to take you on another trip down hard rock and heavy metals uh, memory lane to uh, find three more albums to see if they can squeeze them into our ever-burgeoning Hall of Fame. Um, as, I showed, as I said, the show is called Enter Sad Men. We've got a website. Come and see us there at entersadmen.co.uk. Um, from there, you've got links to everything that we're on, Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter, God knows what else. Um, opportunity for you to have your say about what we're doing, what you like about it, what you don't like about it, ideas you've got. Although bear in mind that what we do is based on themes, um, and it's from the years from 1970 to 1995 kind of loosely. I dare say we'll stretch those parameters at some point. Um, but that's the idea. So we're looking at three albums every episode um, from that period, trying to get a Hall of Fame, which will have heaven knows how many records in it by the end of it. Um, and tonight we are, or on this episode, we're up to episode 20. Um, and it's called Rock Goddess Homework. And to explain why, uh, Mark, do you want to take that one on? So, yes. So, um uh, if you were listening earlier in the week, then you will know or listen to the last uh, edition of the podcast, which is a special edition uh, featuring Jody and Julie Turner from Rock Goddess. So you'll know what we're doing this week. Um, we are reviewing three albums that uh, Jody and Julie set for us, uh, a bit like we did with Brian Tatler of Diamond Head uh, a couple of months back. So, yeah, they set us three albums, uh, three of their favourite albums, I think, probably, I think it's fair to say. And, um, yeah, we've spent the week listening to it, haven't we? It's been, um, it's been interesting. You know, the two of them are Stone Cold, Cold Classics that probably everybody knows, maybe even off by heart. And one um, is probably the, the, the most interesting of the three in some ways. Don't you think, Richard? Yeah, so... The three albums we'll be talking about in this this episode are uh, The Runaways, Waiting for the Night, uh, they're Metallica's Black Album, and uh, they are, and the, finally, ACDC's If You Want Blood. Yeah, I mean, we, we know, I think, If You Want Blood and the Black Album Inside Out, and I imagine a lot of people listening to this do too, uh, but I didn't know. Waiting for the Night by the Runaways. I'd heard some of their stuff, but not this album. So I've been giving this a ton of listens this last week, just so it can catch up a bit. And it's been interesting for me, I have to say, I don't know about you, Steve, but I, I found it really interesting that I've listened to the Black Album and If You Want Blood in particular with a much more critical head on than I probably would have done before when I would have just sat and gushed about it, or about both of them, really. Um, it's been, um, you know, uh, some of it, interestingly, some of it has not been as I remembered it. And whether that's for good or the bad, we're about to find out. But has that been the same for you? Yeah, well, to a degree, yeah, that's really interesting. I still I still fancy you'd be gushing more than otherwise come, um, come the blackout, but we shall see. Um yeah, I suppose the, I'm trying to work out which was the one you were surprised that they'd served up as one of their three, because clearly not the Runaways, surely, because I can absolutely understand them being inspired by them. The Black Album everyone loves. If You Want Blood, I'm guessing, is the one that you were surprised by. No, no, I, I was I was mildly surprised by Metallica, not because I thought it was an album they, that, that 
the two of them wouldn't have liked. I've assumed, I can't believe there are many people on the planet who don't absolutely love the Black Album. Um, but given that one of their choices, The Runaways, was released in 77, If You Want Blood was released in 78, I kind of expected them to be somewhere around the same same kind of um, time time zone as those two. But, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? We've, we've, um, we've, we've wondered how the Black Album would impact on the Hall of Fame, and we're about to find out how the Black Album will impact on the Hall of Fame. So it's going to be an interesting night, that's for sure. Shall we take a listen to uh, some stuff from all of them? The three albums, three little snippets from each. Six of them you probably know really well. Three of them you probably know less well. Uh, and we're going to find out a bit more about those because uh, walking us through the runaways, waiting for the night. Steve, take it away. Opening album sleeve notes. Mm, yeah, and like Richard, this was a new one on me as well. Um, you know, clearly aware of who the runaways were, but they were sort of... Um, here today, gone tomorrow, weren't they? The back end of the 70s. And therefore, well, not therefore, they just did avoid my radar altogether. So it was, um, yeah, October the 1st, 1977, this album was released. Let's just run you through a few nuts and bolts on this thing. It's um, Runaways Waiting for the Night, released, as I say, in October 1977 on the Mercury label, a lovely brief 39 minutes long. That's the length of an album. Produced by the, well, what word do you put in front of Kim... Fowley. Controversial, I think, in many, many ways. 
Um, I, I was thinking of I was thinking of something else beginning with C, but carry on. Yeah, and given that you can't slander the dead, we'll go into that later. Um, yeah. And it was produced at Larrabee Sound Studios in LA. The personnel was Joan Jett. It was her first album as vocals and rhythm guitarist. Lita Ford on lead guitar, Vicky Blue on bass, and Sandy West as drums. It was the first album as a four-piece. Um, highest UK chart position, haven't got a clue, because to be honest, it seems to just have not managed to get anywhere. Certainly didn't chart in the US. Um, sales info, therefore, I've got absolutely no idea. And all I do know is that it's, oh, it's been a really, really interesting listen. I kind of thought that, if, if, I'm, if I'm honest, had Rock Goddess not suggested it, I asked the question, would we have actually reviewed a Runaways album? Because this is, I mean, you'll have to answer that for me. I don't know. Because I know they were trailblazers, and I know they kind of, Lita Ford and Joan Jett have gone on to become big rock stars and everything. But this, to me, is as close to a punk album as you'll get. And um, there's not an awful lot, barring a few twangs and clangs from Lita Ford, who's a very good guitarist. There's, there's not a lot of metal going on here, but it's, um, you know, these were kids. These were kids. Joan Jett had just turned 19, so had Lita Ford when this was produced. Sandy West on drums was only 18, for Christ's sake. So, um, yeah, they were kids having fun. So, yeah, my take on it is it's... It's 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 been a it's been an interesting listen. Will I go back to it? Dot dot dot. All <laughs> you. I think we would have considered a Runaways album for our podcast. I, I came very close to picking one before I was blown away by Phantom Blue for our Girls Aloud episode. So, yeah, I, I, I think yeah they do come into consideration, and I think they were they were they were trailblazers. Uh, and you know we've last week sorry, for the last episode we considered Heart, who were you know even less metal uh, than this. So I think in terms of a pretty trailblazing girl rock band, and um, it's cl- so clear we'll come back to it. I think it's pretty clear how they became such an influence for rock goddess and an inspiration for for rock goddess, both in terms of style and age. Uh, it's been I've really enjoyed it. Uh, what's been interesting is I've tried to play it so many, so many times. I, th- I think it's probably only about ten million and a half listens uh, behind uh, uh, if you want blood, and about twenty million listens behind the Black Album. That, that my views on each track seem to shift every time I listen to it. So I want to go back to it. I mean, Steve, I think, I think you should too. It's, um, yeah, it, it's been a really enjoyable listen for me. All right, you've shamed me. You've shamed me. And we are a broad church. If enter sad men or anything, we're a broad church. So, Mark, you'll be going back to it then as well, will you? Um, would I go back to this album? Probably not. Uh, are the runa- Were the Runaways influential more generally than just to uh, Jody and Judy Turner? Don't know. Not sure. Um, I think I think they are a really, really interesting band, and I think they've got a really, really interesting story, tragic story in all sorts of ways as well. Uh, do do I would I go back? I would go back to their first album certainly. Second album, less. I think it's interesting. Steve, you're right. This album is is more punk than rock. The first album, the self titled first album, is more rock. Than punk, I think it would have been really interesting to see what they would have done in the early '80s with all of the 
you know, new movements going on. But I mean, we're talking about a band, remember, that was the one direction of their day. You know, Kim Fowley was the Simon Cowell of his day, and he put this band together in the same way that Simon Cowell put together One Direction. And, you know, One Direction, it seems strange talking about One Direction in this podcast, but One Direction were a or a flame that burned very brightly for a very short period of time, relatively speaking. So are the runaways. And I think it's it's in the nature of the beast, isn't it? We'll get on to it. I really like them. I like them as a band. I'm, I have become obsessed by their story over the last 10 days or so. I think the music's a more interesting discussion. Should we listen to it? So Waiting for the Night is The Runaway's fourth album, their third studio album. And, um, and as, as I said in the intro, it's the first not to feature Sherry Curry on vocals with Joan Jett taking on that mantle. Curry and Ford had fallen out. And to be fair, you can't mention who falls out with who in this band. It just seems to be an absolute litany of it, from, from and it's still going on now. Um, so Joan Jett, anyway, has taken on vocals. The album opens up with Little Sister, which is a, you know, really cool rhythm of a time. We are in 1977. Um, we've done a few bands who do that kind of glam punk metal thing, and um, the impression you get from Little Sister is that this is this album's going going to go down a punk route. It's not quite the album isn't quite Little Sister times ten, but it's um, it's not far off. It's very typically Runaways. They were mistresses of this kind of catchy roller coaster riff that's running through it. Uh, they did it really well. I mean, if you want to hear it at its best, go back and listen to the first album, which is just just hit after hit after hit. So yeah, I, I love this. I think it's a great start to the album. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Nice, cool rhythm, Rich, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lovely chugging riff, isn't it? And um, Joan Jett's voice has sort of really got a growling attitude to it. Uh, I think it's a good start, really good start. One other point I wanted to make was uh, I was quite surprised, given there are backing vocals and harmony vocals on the rest of the album, there are none on this song. In the chorus, I mean, she's really reaching, uh, really reaching for the notes. Uh, and I'm quite surprised um, there are no other voices beneath her in the chorus on, on this track. That's quite uh, interesting. Uh, I hadn't spotted that. and the, But one thing I did spot later, and I'm probably going to be proven very, very wrong, was that on the credits for this album, they're all vocalists. So you've got vocals and three backing vocals. I never actually hear four vocals at any one time until the final track, but I could be wrong. But the harmonies are a feature of the album. Well, yes, and not always in a good way. Yeah, you know, there's 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 quite a lot of not quite making the pitch or the note going on as well. So it's a bit of a mess. This album. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not enjoyable, but it's a bit of a mess. No, no, no. I I, I absolutely agree. And um, if, if if I mean, if you wanted a sense of what the album was from Little Sister, then we you move into Wasted, which is the second track, and you, there's a bit of a ditto sign going on. Something of a reprise of the opener, if I'm honest. But but uh, I do like it. I think. Credit here, we, we, we need to mention all the, all the instrumentalists. I mean, we know Lita Ford's a great guitarist. I like um, special mention to Vicky Blue, if only for her name, which was Victory Tischler Blue, which is lovely. And you can hear her bass. She went on to star in Spinal Tap, apparently. Did you know that? As Cindy, yeah. You can, play, you can place her in the film. I can't remember it at all, but yeah, okay, yeah. Um, very good bassist, very, very good bassist. And, and a track like Wasted, she drives it along really nicely. We'll we'll get on to the politics and the implosions within the band in due course, I'm sure. Um, 
I mean, she obviously, this is her first out, first album, uh, only album <laughs> with the band, having replaced Jackie Fox, who left on the Far East tour uh, that preceded this album. It's, um, yeah, I don't know whether you've seen it, but there's a, a documentary that Vicky Tischler-Blue filmed uh, called Edge Play, which is just really a series of interviews with band members past and present. And... The, the departure of Jackie Fox, which obviously led to Vicky Blue's arrival, is a horrendous story and indicative, I think, of just how dangerous it is when you allow people like Kim Fowley to effectively dictate the lives of your 15-year-old daughter. Hmm. But we'll come on to that. She is. She's a very good bassist. She's also a very, very accomplished filmmaker now. Okay, so T-Rex have joined the party for um, track three, which is Gotta Get Out Tonight, which is very nice of them. Um, yeah, this is, this is, this is bang a gong time, isn't it? This is, well, we're in the late 70s and they were huge and they were glam and so this lot-ish. So, yeah, it's that feel, isn't it? You're, you're actually quite surprised when Joan Jett starts singing because you're expecting Mark Bolan. Yeah. They've got the clapping going on there. Oh, I, I, like, I do like the chorus with the harmonies and the hand claps. It's a, and the, the ride symbol, it's, a, it's good fun. The, the thing about this album, for me, is it's it's such a snapshot in time of where this band is, because they are falling apart at the seams now. You know, Vicky Blue notwithstanding, she arrives. This is just a car crash behind the scenes. I, I'm, I'm amazed they got this album out. Yeah. You know what's even more amazing is that they've had time for a car crash to happen, and yet they're still in their teams I mean, it's ludicrous, isn't it? I mean, how young were they when they started this project? Fifteen, weren't they? They were fifteen yeah, by yeah, the time. Yeah. yeah. This this is two years, three years after they're put. They've been put together. They're already messed up with drugs. You know, some of them are coming out of it. Some of them are still in it. There's there's all sorts of politics, gender and sex politics going on in the band. You've got management interfering, and I mean in all senses. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, it's it's absolutely toxic the environment of this album. Yeah, it, it's so sad. I mean, it would appear from the credits. Yeah, you know, they're writing all their own stuff. They're trying to make music, and it's I, I think it's good fun music. I just find it. I find it so sad. Yeah, it's like behind a mask, isn't it? Yeah, because they bang out some really good tunes. That there, there, there is nothing. I mean, there, there's stuff wrong with this album, but. As a listen, as an experience, nothing wrong with this. Yeah. They're really good. I've been watching live videos of them live. They're tight as fuck. You know, they're, and they, they're kids. They're girls. And you just wonder, don't you, with a bit more direction and a bit more care, you know, and I, I mean that in the sense of, of protection, what could they have gone on and achieved? Because, because to be turning this stuff out, at the age of 17, 18, 19, it's yeah. astonishing. Exactly. What do you think of the, when, when we talked to Jody and Julie, the, the, the support, everything their dad did for them? Imagine the runaways have been in that same environment here. Should we stop, in the words of Bon Scott, beating around the bush and, and actually talk about Kim Fowley? Because, you know, anyone can Google it and Wikipedia it and the rape claims and the allegations, which, and to make those rape claims even worse, they weren't even all supported by the girl mem- by the members of the band because they because they were such 
fractiousness between the whole lot of them. It was really unpleasant, the whole thing. And he really was a sinister piece of work, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, he was an absolutely horrendous man. Absolutely horrendous. I've been watching a lot of stuff about the band over the last week. And frankly, I wanted to climb through the TV. It's a good job he's dead, frankly, because I wanted to climb through the TV and strangle him myself by the end of it. Jackie Fox in in Edge Play talks about she had this this kind of road to Damascus moment where she she just woke up in a hotel room in Japan and just thought, I can't do this anymore. Rang her mum and said, you've got to get me out of here. Fowley gave her uh, a bus ticket to get her to the airport. No money. You know, they lived on cheeseburgers. He withheld all of the money from them. Manipulative. And he said in the interview on the on, in the film, he's talking about the fact he had no idea why Jackie Fox left the band. She just upped and left, and you know that was up to her. Absolutely no, no sense of remorse, regret, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely hideous man. That's really interesting. But and, and to make this whole story even worse, on the flip side of that, you read Lisa Ford's book, Living Like a Runaway. She's got nothing but respect for Kim Fowley. So without him, there'd have been no runaways. Never got on with Cherry Curry. Doesn't talk to Joan Jett. There is so much bad blood. And, I, you know, I mean, she says how the film about the, the band, the film that you're talking about, portrayed them in a really bad light. She's got no time for it whatsoever. There's clearly so many fissures and and, um, and problems within the group now. I mean, none of them get on by the looks of it. Um, that someone like Fowley can actually divide opinions, and yet he and yet he's a loathsome creature. Or was yeah, yeah, and Sandy West, who obviously died of lung cancer, didn't she? In the film, there's an awful lot of mental health issues that kind of bubble up in that documentary, and the the, the most poignant. And Sandy West is is actually the most poignant of all of them in in because in the documentary in the interview, she can't understand why the band can't just put all of their problems behind them and reunite and and create music together because she says, and she's absolutely right, when they made music, that they were brilliant. So that's why I say I'm, I'm amazed this album got out. Yeah. I'm surprised they lasted three studio albums. <laughs> so after all that dissection of, um, of Kim Fowley and his role in, in this band, um, we carry on with the album, uh, track four, Wait For Me, um, which is another chugging guitar line. We, we, we've kind of been here before. And while doing this, you, you find yourself inevitably drawn to the, the vocals of Joan Jett, which is quite good on this. How does she stack up compared to Cherry Curry? What's your views? I prefer Jett, I think. Oh, I prefer Cherry Curry. Okay. I don't like, I don't dislike Joan Jett. I, and, you know, I like Joan Jett, the stuff she did in the 80s. I like that. I like the stuff Lisa Ford did. But I think Cherry Curry, you listen to the debut album uh, and, yeah, arguably their calling card of Cherry Bomb would be hard to beat um but she's her voice is amazing cherry curries okay yeah both strain though don't they yeah rich do you like wait for me i do like wait for me it sort of goes down a notch i was trying to think which kiss song it is but there's something in the riff that reminds me of some early kiss i can't remember what song it is i like how it builds gets heavier a bit louder at the end and i think it does talking about joan jett's voice it it this this song and some of the other sort of perhaps you know quieter songs like like fantasies and waiting for the night I think to Joan Jett's 
vocal style better. I, so, so I prefer her in these kinds of songs. I think in the in the more traditional runaway songs like sort of Wasted and Little Sister, those are songs it's felt like were written for Sherry to sing. So, uh, yeah, I'm I, I, I'm I'm sitting on the fence in terms of their vocals. I think. Neither of them are bad. Yeah, no, the fence is a good place to sit. I think that's fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, and side one is wrapped up with uh, Fantasies, which is one of two songs written on this album by Lita Ford, which probably explains why after a bit of, um, you know, four tracks of pretty no-nonsense, punky, glam punk, we finally get a bit of old-school metal, <laughs> a little bit of um, a little bit of Sabbath, um, which you could argue doesn't work with a female vocal. To be honest, it doesn't work with an Aussie vocal either. <laughs> Yeah. I, think, I, think, I think it works because she's actually singing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. It's a strong song, though. I do like it. I love the little guitar bridges in it. And and it's an opportunity because the, the drums through this, Sandy West, by the way, Sherry Curry said of her that she's, you know, the best female drummer there's ever been now. You know, I, I, I haven't got any yardsticks with that, but she's a bloody good drummer, bloody good hit, bloody good stick hitter. We we should defer, Steve, to uh, the gentleman yes. in the in the other corner, Lars from Twickenham. So so let me uh, pose a question to you, uh, Richards. Okay, uh, if you had to choose a, a a female drummer to pick as the, the better of the two, would you pick Sandy West of the Runaways or would you pick Julie Turner of Rock Goddess? <laughs> oh, uh, uh, Julie, uh, and that's not that's not being showing any bias or. Deference. No, I, I, I think Julie's got a broader range. I think she's got a better groove. I think she hits it harder. So I, I prefer her drumming style. I think, yeah, I think Sandy's perfectly good for, for the, the music that they do. Nothing else to say, really. But I do like, I really, really like this track. I like the light and shade. This is a track to listen to in the dark. Put it on the turntable, turn it up, turn the lights off, and let the let a voice echo around the room. I, I, I really like the production on this. I like the say the reverb, the echo on a voice. Uh, it's yeah, one of my favourite tracks on the album. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree with you. And and we can't leave this track actually without talking about Lisa Ford. She is a properly good guitarist. Properly, properly good guitarist. Yeah, absolutely. She's a bloody great seller. She, she. If this band was ever going to go any further in her direction, it was only going to go one way, and that was this way, wasn't it? This is what she. This, this was what she wanted to do and carry on doing. So, you know, it was never going to work. For me, the measure of a good guitarist is how they adjust their style and what they're doing to the song. And I think the solo in this song is spot on for the mood that it's trying to create. And and there, there's a sign of how good a guitarist she was. So five down, five to come. Side two, uh, we kick off with School Days, which was their first single off this album. I think it did quite well in Belgium or Japan. Would have sat quite nicely on Dookie or something like that. There's a bit, a bit of Green Day, a bit of Green Day to this. So I'm, I'm a bit, I'm about 15 years before that. I'm getting a fair amount of... So Blondie meets Susie and the Banshees meets po- the, the opening riff also puts me in mind of Poison's Talk Dirty to me. Oh, but the, the thing is, though, you know, 
77 this is before really all that punk stuff took took off in uh in the uk I tell tell you what this is this is ramones this is the ramones that's what this is yeah 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 you're right they they they, they were with they knocked about with the ramones all the time didn't they that's I, I, you can see them banging off ideas i'm sure it's, it's a proper punk record isn't it this is mainstream punk yeah when i when I finish listening to this on uh, Spotify, and it, then it starts playing stuff based on what you've just listened to, yeah, the first track Spotify chose was pretty vacant. <laughs> but that, yeah, there you are. There you are. I love this. Good song. Um, and to Trash Can Murders, which is the next song, boys. You, you feel the album starting to, on this, it starts to flag a bit, doesn't it? That's why I asked. <laughs> I've actually heard enough yeah. now. Yeah, I've reached track seven. I've kind of heard enough. Yeah, for me, side two is is weaker. Uh, there's one track I, that I think for me stands out. Be interesting if you agree. I've I've written four words in my notes for trash can murders. Um, word one is fine, <laughs> and words two, three, and four are bubble gum rock. <laughs> yeah, I hate to be pedantic, but I think bubble gum's one word. But anyway. Fuck off. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'll, I'll do that. It's a, it's derivative. It's derivative of themselves. They're just recycling their old stuff. Well, you wonder with all with all of the problems going on, actually, how much of this was recycled and and you know squeezed into okay, do this song, play this song, that'll do. We we need ten tracks. Okay, so um, halfway through. Side two, Don't Go Away is next. As I say, my tensions begin to wane a bit. And I've also, I do like Joan Jett's voice, but I've kind of had enough of that now as well. It, this, this whole thing's just beginning to jar a little bit. Am I, am, am I in a minority of one? No, I don't think so. There's none of this. None of this album is below average. Mm, agreed. It's, all, it's either average or above. Agreed. But yeah, but yeah, we, we, we've, we've gone from a pretty strong opening five and we've got that old side two problem now haven't we so again she's reaching for the for the notes but i don't feel this really has the attitude of the opening two tracks uh that growl and there felt to be a lot more of attitude whereas this is just a bit say shouting i mean the, the story apparently goes that sherry um curry was the the last piece in the jigsaw when they kind of first put the band together. And, um, well, apart from Lisa Ford, I think Lisa Ford was the last member in, wasn't she? But Sherry Curry arrives. She and um, Joan Jett and Kim Fowley write, sit down and they write Sherry Bomb, knock it out in 20 minutes. And it feels like the Runaways spent the next three years trying to rewrite Cherry Bomb. You know, that, that, that became the kind of the benchmark and they were always trying to get above that. Because um, there's a lot of tried and trusted stuff that we're hearing on this now. It's 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 all kind of very familiar and not particularly inventive, in my view. No, and that's that's what that's one of the well, that's the the, the real significant problem with this album. It's one downfall. There's a lack of variety. That's why I quite like fantasies because it is an element of different. And um, you know, coming up next, we've got the title track, um, "Waiting for the Night," um, where they go a little bit kind of AOR on us slowing the whole thing down and then um picking up a little bit but never quite really but it's um it's almost that inevitable track nine on an album which is pretty much pure punk and fairly unimaginative this is quite different 
It's not unpleasant. The worst words that we have ever used about any albums that we've talked about are, it's not unpleasant, it's inoffensive, it's a perfectly good song. Yeah. The the three phrases that are the absolute arch enemy of hard rock and heavy metal. (laughs) Because they've got to make you feel something. You know what I mean? And, And things don't. And 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 I'll tell you how bad no not how bad I'll tell you I'll tell you how much of a problem side two of this album is for me. The very first time I played it, and I think I've probably heard I must have heard one or two songs from it at some point, but it was pretty much new to me in the same way that it was to you. Very first time I played it, I was doing something and listening to it, and um, and then I realised it finished. And the last song that I remembered was the first song on side two. And the other four songs had just kind of, I t- tuned out. And I'm not, and I think that's because it is, it is so samey on side two, particularly. Mm. But there's an element of something different about, about the title track, is there not? I don't know. Yeah, but, yes, do you like it? Yeah, I, I think this is, uh, the rest of side two for me is unremarkable. But I think this is good. I think it, yeah, it's more atmospheric. There's a bigger structure to it. Um, it builds really nicely uh, in the chorus. It's another of those listen to it with the lights out songs. This is another of my favourites. I think it's up there with uh, the better ones of side one. Okay, so if you like that one, Rich, then how are you on the um, on the sign off? You're too possessive, which is the final track on the album. Where do you stand on that? Filler afterthought. Filler. And I think the mistake they made is they had a line, you're too possessive, and they tried to write a song around that line and failed. <laughs> yeah. Mark? Pretty much the same, really. It's it's The album dies with a whimper rather than a roar, doesn't it? Okay. So it's an interesting album. Again, interesting. Is that is that one of those one of those words that you really don't want to be defined by as well? I think it could be interesting as long as... Another word in the description is, I'm very good. (laughs) Let's be clear. When someone generally, when you say something uh, in a conversation and someone replies to you, "Mm, that's very interesting, Richard. Basically, it means that you're talking bollocks. Well, well, uh, all right, the runaways aren't interesting. In fact, which is not true because they were were never dull. Their four years on this planet as a band were, were never, never dull. And they did what every good punk band should do, which is kick some heads, row a lot, fuck off. And and that was them. Job done. So, yeah, waiting for the night. Highs and lows, boys. Highs and lows. Mark, give us a low. Give us a high, baby. I think Don't Go Away is my low. And I think my high is um, Fantasies. Hard to choose between the four of the tracks on side two for a low. Let I'll say you're too possessive. The high, Waiting for the Night and Fantasies. Yeah, no. So a low, I'm with you on that. Don't go away. Just, just, just doesn't do much for me at all. And highs, I do like fantasies, but I'm going to give it to uh, Gotta Get Out Tonight. As, as part of a decent side of music, it's, um, it's a good track. Yeah, the whole thing's been a really fascinating listen. Um, I'm not entirely sure. Well, in fact, I am sure. Spoiler alert. They're not going to make it into a Hall of Fame, but that doesn't mean it hasn't been um, a worthwhile exercise. And I'm glad I'm now familiar with uh, some of the runaways. And you can absolutely tell their influence on rock artists, can't you? I think yeah. the, uh, I, I sense you know, 
Joan Jett's vocal style when I think, I think and you know, sorry, Sherry before her, you could sense that some of Jodie's real, you know, attitude in, in their singing came from them. So it's not surprising they picked this as one album for us to review. Yeah. I, 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 I've thoroughly enjoyed it and um, it will get into the Hall of Fame tonight because the Hall of Fame isn't full, yeah. but it will drop out, I think, reasonably quickly after that. But uh, I've really enjoyed it, and it's. I've listened to the other albums as part of the exercise, and I think they will fare better as and when we get to them. And I, I forget interesting, and they were important. We can all agree they, they were they were an important stage post in the story of of, uh, of hard rock and rock and roll. And um, when anyone tells you that Madonna was a trailblazer for wearing a corset on stage, you can fuck right off. These girls, decade before, see you later, love. <laughs> All right, yeah, so there we go. Episode 20 has kicked off with Waiting for the Night by the Runaways, and the second album of this show is... It's ACDC. Yay! Rejoice, rejoice. It's a live album. Boo, hiss. Yeah, so it is the famous... Many people, I don't know who these many are, many people call it the world's greatest ever live album. I've no idea what the measurement for that is. I have not got a clue but we're about to talk about In the Capable Hands of Rich. If You Want Blood. Opening album sleeve notes. If you want an album that you put on your turntable and turn your amp up to ear-splitting volume, I can't think of another live album that will put you in the middle of a big, sweaty, heaving crowd more than this one does. What do I what do I like out of live albums? I mean, I love Strangers in the Night and and the atmosphere. I obviously like my live Rush albums just in terms of a, a capturing you know, the brilliant musicianship live. But oh, I've enjoyed listening to this again. Uh, but you have you, you, this. This isn't one album you have on in the background because you will not appreciate it. You need your headphones on at full volume. You need it um, in a hi-fi with the neighbours out with the wall shaking, and and that's when it when it delivers. I mean, it, 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 if they brought albums out in 4D with you know sort of sweat and smellow vision, this would be top top of the list. So it was recorded at the Apollo Theatre in Glasgow on uh, the 30th of April, 1978. It was their Power Age tour. And um, I mean, they went on to do, I don't remember, hundreds of gigs, I think, on that tour worldwide. But this was, this was three gigs into that tour. This was the third gig on, on, on that tour. They obviously went all the way around the UK and then into Europe and Canada, USA, and, and everywhere else. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was recorded on oh, hell knows what kind of equipment. It was then uh, mastered and, and produced in the uh, studios by Harry Vander and George Young, and it was released on Atlantic Records on the 13th of October, uh, 1978. Interestingly... I mean, it's got ten tracks on it. Um, we'll talk about well. Let's let's talk about the tracks. So the tracks are as follows: uh, one is riffraff, two hell ain't a bad place to be, three is bad boy boogie, four is the jack, five is problem child, six is whole lot of Rosie, 
seven rock and roll damnation, eight high voltage, nine let there be rock, and ten is the rocker. Um, I'm presuming I do, don't need to tell you who the personnel were, but in case you really do want to know, Bon Scott, Angus Young, Malcolm Young, Cliff Williams, and Phil Rudd. Interestingly, guys, the songs weren't quite in the order that they played them at the concert. If these 10 songs had been in that order, they would have been as follows. Riff Raff started it. Problem Child was second. Uh, then Hell Ain't a Bad Place to Be, Rock and Roll Damnation and Bad Boy Boogie. And then the Jack, High Voltage, Rosie, Let There Be Rock, and then the Rocker. So actually the, the order was broadly the same. But it, on listening to the album, I'm, I will come on to Problem Child because I think it's absolutely colossal. Problem Child following Riff Raff, that place must have been an absolute riot. So I'm interested, Steve. I think you need to, for the for the purposes of governance and uh, context, I think you need to explain again why you are not a fan of live albums. Um, because most of the tracks you hear on live albums were written for studios and they sound better on vinyl. If a band's done a tour and I haven't gone to it, I don't need to have my face rubbed in the dirt that I wasn't there. I know I wasn't there. I don't need to be reminded of the fact that I wasn't there. I also think that most live albums are kind of wandering, drawn out, over-soloed, self-indulgent, often badly produced, often with shit production and poor sound quality. They don't ever get the flavour of being at a gig because they're not at a gig. You're listening to it on vinyl. And that's my problem. Having said all of that, and I don't change any of that, the difference with this album is, of course, I love all 10 tracks on it. I love because they're just phenomenal tracks. What I like about this album, it gives you an opportunity to see how the the evolution of ACDC is a live act, which is very interesting um, because this is, you know, this is 10 tracks. What is it? 50, 52 minutes long. Um, ACDC, they're an in-your-face blues rock band. And if you didn't know that, well, listen to this because this is an under an hour of in-your-face blues rock um, as it should be played. And it's, you know, very few trimmings and it's 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 a perfectly acceptable piece of work. Would it be my way of listening to ACDC? No. Fair enough. And every track and every track on here, well, not every track on here, but seven or eight of the tracks on here, two, there's two exceptions. One is obvious, which is the jack, but several of the tracks on here are just so much better on vinyl. So this is this is the first heavy metal album that I owned. It, it was the it was the album that got me into this crazy music. More specifically, track one side two got me into this crazy music because I I was walking down the street and there was a, a another kid, an older kid in front of me, with a, a ghetto blaster on his shoulder playing a whole lot of Rosie, and that was it. That was me sold, done, um, non negotiable. I was uh, it, I was never going to turn turn back from that road um so so this 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 album has a huge kind of sentimentality for me well i was going to say i became acdc's number one fan as a result of this album but i think that would probably upset all the other number one fans of acdc out there so um i am one of the many number one fans of acdc as a result of this album so i love it it isn't flawless it isn't the best live album ever released i think that probably still goes to Live and Dangerous than Lizzie. 
but the flaws in it it's overdubbed it's it's, it's horrifically overdubbed which i never realized that when i first listened to it but it is extraordinarily well produced and overdubbed so you kind of uh let them get away with that there is yeah if you if you watch as when you know I mean, the beauty of technology now is you can go onto youtube and you can watch acdc playing live in paris in 1979 and you know that bond cannot hit the notes that he hits on this album so therefore we know that this is a this is an art an artificial live environment do i enjoy it any less for knowing that absolutely fucking no i absolutely love it i still think you know i think it's a great album if i have a critical eye and a critical ear on it it's got its it's got its moments where it's not so good on the overdubs then because there, there there is a, we know we, we talked previously about the overdubs on Strangers in the Night. We know that Live and Dangerous is pretty overdubbed. The stories I've read about this album is it's inconclusive. Certainly, certainly Rosie is. You can absolutely tell it is. It sounds completely different to any of the other tracks on this album. But I wonder about the rest. I don't know about Bond's in his notes. But his on a lot of these tracks, his voice sounds so raw, and and it and it sounds live. So I, I, I'm I'm not sure about the over the story about the overdubs on this album. I don't think it matters actually whether it is or it isn't. It pisses me off, you know. I think I think the, the I'd like to think, and I could be wrong. I'd like to think that this is an accurate representation of an ACDC concert. And back to Steve's point. If you're going to do overdubs, then don't bother with live albums. Just do it in the fucking studio. You know, I, again, I could be proved wrong, but the reason I like my live Rush albums is I believe that they are an accurate representation of those three guys playing live, and I like it for that reason, that it's capturing them playing together in front of an audience. As soon as I find out that an album is overdubbed, a live album is overdubbed, it, it puts me off it. That's interesting. We're, we're, we're probably in danger of straying into into the, the territory that Steve risked, said we risked straying into. But I think it's an interesting conversation. We know that ACDC can play as well as you hear them on this album. It's just not as clean. You know, the, 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 this album is overdubbed. I, show me a live album that isn't overdubbed, and 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 I'll show you a bootleg tape. Um, <laughs> you know, and if you if you need kids if you need to know what a tape is go and google it um, but but we know they're brilliant and they're brilliant on this and it doesn't it doesn't matter to me it doesn't matter to me because i know it's not like acdc are shit live and they've got an album out now that makes them sound absolutely amazing they sound absolutely amazing when they play live anyway so the fact that they've tidied it up a bit is neither here nor there to me um this is a colossal album and and it's a colossal experience going to see them and i and, and i hope i i you know the, the the hope fades with every parting day but i hope that i'll get the chance to go and see them for a 37th time and enjoy them live but you know the fact is that there are there are live albums um where you listen to it and you think i know damn well that band is not that good live because i've seen them and i've seen them more than once it wasn't just an off night they just don't do it live not like that i don't feel that way about this album I think this album is a true representation of them live. I just think it's cleaner. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what, though, the proof of the pudding in terms of what I was saying, Richard, is 
play this album next to ACDC Live, and ACDC Live is is not a great live album, and it I think it's that is an artificial album in a way that this one simply isn't. This one is just a let's tidy it up around the edges album. I think. Come on, let's listen to it. Otherwise, we'll be down this rabbit hole for hours. So let's go through this album then, and it starts with track one, which is Riff Raff. One nice thing I think about the, the opening track is how it captures the, the atmosphere, you know, crowd waiting for the band to come on, and, uh, and then it just goes, the band comes on, anger starts, they're just so tight, and then the entire thing just explodes, and you can just imagine how mental it was in, that, uh, in, in the mosh pit in the auditorium. Yeah, you absolutely can imagine that. And this is the day, and this is back in the day when, as I said earlier, yeah, this is this is stripped back ACDC as they, as they were in the in the Bon Scott era. So this is before you know inflatable roses and lines of Anguses ahead of Thunderstruck and um, you know the, the the big cannon, the blazing farewells that you get to to a modern concert. So yeah, like you, Richard, I I do get that sense of anticipation. You've been there. We've all been there, even as the ACDC, we've all been there at the start of a concert when you can hear this. You can hear them coming on and the lights are picking up and you are so excited, slightly pissed, very excited. And you know that in a small venue, which is an absolute, you know, sweat fest, you're about to have, you know, the best hour and a half of your life. And you, you couldn't pick a better song to kick off with, could you, than Riff Raff? It just... Yeah, it's just that riff. It's that riff. And, yeah. and, and uh, Rudden Williams beneath it all, just tight as hell. And and Bond struggling to keep up with it on this version. It's all it's all you know, really quickly got, which is great because it just adds to the whole thing. But he's he's um, yeah, it's it's pulling them along at a rate of knots, isn't it? And Riff Raff gives way to hell. Ain't a bad place to be. I'd be interesting to hear what you guys think but with this track i think this live version is better than the studio version for me it lifts it to another level in terms of the energy in terms of the punch of this no i agree with that it's slightly tepid the the vinyl or the the studio version i think and this is you're right this does take it up a gear um I think this is an interesting choice of second track in. If we were there at this show, you'd find if this was the the, the order, you'd find that a bit strange. I think <laughs> you would. Yeah, it would be. I mean, whilst it's a brilliant track, you think, uh, you know, okay, yeah, it was a decent yeah. track too. But, I mean, problem child, <laughs> problem child would have just the uh, exact point of going to see a band. Track two is the one. Track two is the one that defines the rest of the concert. But, of course, we have been to a concert where Hell Ain't a Bad Place to Be was the second track. 2009, it followed Rock and Roll Train. If you recall, I'm sure you recall, because we looked at each other. I remember us looking yes. at each other and thinking, that's, a re- that's quite an odd choice for a track two. You, they kind of picked us up. The train had come out the back and everything. And he just thought... We love Hell Ain't a Bad Place to Be, but you thought, you know what, they just kind of dropped us down a little bit, and that's a bit unfair of them. We were waiting for something else. Yeah, Beano had barely finished the blowjob in the cartoon, and we were into... Uh... <laughs> yeah. It's funny. We were into it's about 
funny in concerts how you every track has its place. You know, I'm playing all the right tracks, just not in the right order. Yes. I mean, this is how long a bad place to be is you kind of middle of the set. Might go for a quick wee. <laughs> well, well it, it, it's it's the moment where you where you just want to give the crowd a bit of a rest, isn't it? You know? Yeah. But yeah, um, but yeah, you, you you boys with your more sophisticated ears are saying that on this on, on if you want blood, you wouldn't go for a pee during this track because they've taken it up a notch. And oh, I'm not, and, I'm yeah. not in terms not, of the track itself, yeah. I think it's a brilliant version. Yeah. <laughs> We're now discussing the order of tracks on albums, gents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm just not quite I'm not quite getting what, what you're saying about the track, and that's it's my ear. Listen listen to the listen to the back line that on this track. It's the back line. Yeah. And and, and you know, who are who are the stars of classic era ACDC? And we've always, well, we've always said this. We've always said this. Yeah. You know, from from seventy five through until eighty two, you know, that they were absolutely that backline of you know Rod Williams and Malcolm yeah. Young. Yeah. Listen to Bon on on that. He gives the vocals absolutely everything. Yes, I couldn't agree more. That's what standing. That's what I'm getting more than anything else. I'm not getting any difference with the backbeat, which you probably are. I'm not. I'm genuinely. Not. I'm thinking Bon Scott is going way, way over the top with this, which is, which is, which is fantastic. It must live. It must look brilliant. The bloke's on fire, um, and he does sound different here. Far, far different um, to on vinyl. Yeah. I'm getting that. And similarly, I'm, 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 we're on to track three with Bad Boy Boogie. This is why I'd be so disappointed if I found out his vocals were overdubbed, because I, I, it just, I just sense these at the front of that stage, absolutely giving it his all. This, this is a, a, a massive high point on the album for me, because it picks you up and it just won't put you down. He's just relentless, absolutely relentless. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I'm not, I can't even, I can't even be sure. I mean, I can't even remember what I did last week. I can't remember me seeing them do Bad Boy Boogie. I'm sure I would have done, but you know what? I, oh. I, I genuinely can't. I genuinely can't. And um, what I love about this is that one where um, as, later on, as, the, as their concerts got on, there was always that, that sort of prolonged ending, wasn't there? With, Angus playing with the crowd and the backbeat that never stops, and, and you're just sitting there just drooling in, in a kind of trance. And this is this is the track on this album that does that better than any others. I think it's brilliant. And this is where the crowd noise really lifts it as well, as well. Yeah. When they go, when they hammer back into that that riff, when they bring the hammer down again, and then the crowd goes. Absolutely apeshit. Whether they are going apeshit at the time, which I'm sure they are, or whether it has been enhanced for the record, it, it doesn't. It just brings it absolutely into. I'm there. I, 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 I've I've never been near Glasgow Apollo in my life, but I'm at this show on this album. And track four of side one is a little ditty called the Jack. <laughs> So with this one, Crabs in Blue, talking about walking sideways, uh, and you know, a song about having crabs. And this is 
there's one line in this that makes me laugh. It made me laugh the very first time I heard it, and it still makes me laugh today. It's this one. I made a scream, and I curdled her cream. I mean, Bon, you are sorely missed, my friend. Yeah. Now this is this this is a song that on on vinyl is is brilliant. This is a song that on a live album and live in general is taken to a new level, taken to an absolute high. I mean, Bon Bon Scott is in conversation with the crowd here, isn't he? You know, and he's singing. He's never sounded more primeval than he does when he gets onto "She's Got the Jack." It's just there's no music, no melody attached to that at all. It's just pure. Bon Scott and God rest his soul. But this is this is why you go to concerts. This this sort of song. This song is why you go to a concert. The kids of today, you go to these concerts and watch these statues up on stage just doing their thing. No, you you go to a concert to join a confessional, a confessional with Bon Scott, and it's just you know priceless. And how good is Angus Young on this oh. track? Again, this is why I'd be so disappointed if it's true that this stuff's overdubbed because that's this solo in this song is unbelievable. Dirty. Absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, dirty. It's a dirty solo, isn't it? And side one of If You're On Blood ends with <laughs> Oh My God. Um track of the album for me this is just off the fucking scale oh it's problem child by the way i think they didn't put it as track two because say mark they they'd have shot their load but <laughs> yeah, it was a 20 into the album <laughs> so they had to balance it up a bit is my view it's the, the standout track on the album for me I find it fascinating, Steve. I really do about your with live albums. I mean, I, I, I completely understand how your, your point of view, but for me, like a track like this, it's faster. Yeah, it's got even more energy. It's better than the studio version. I think this is better than the studio version. Yeah, no, I'm not disputing that. And I think there's three or four tracks on here that are better than the studio version, but that's all. Um, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a general aversion. This is a great album. There's no two ways about it. It almost doesn't need to be called a live album. It's a great ACDC album, one of their greatest albums. I absolutely, I'm absolutely fine with that. Incidentally, they've shaved a minute off this. Um, it's 5.47 on Dirty Deeds. It's 4.40 here. I don't know what's come out, or they just revved it up. It's astonishing. Is it a minute faster? Yeah. <laughs> they've just put the hammer down, haven't they? And they've gone yeah. for it. It's their creeping death moment. This this still, 42 years on, still gives me goosebumps. It's hairs on the back of the neck, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> it, it actually makes me quite emotional. And side two of If You're On Blood starts with... For the world, the most famous ACDC live track there is. A whole lot of Rosie. Uh, it also starts with possibly the best track one side two song you will ever hear. So of all the things I've read, for some reason it would appear this was overdubbed. 
uh, and it, it, it does sound different to the rest of the album. It, it almost sounds pseudo studio. It makes me that makes me feel a bit sad because it was it was it was the, it was the track. It was the ACDC live track for me back when I was many many years younger. Um, so I feel a bit cheated. Oh, I, I don't care really. <laughs> I know what you mean, but I can't. I can't bring myself to care about it. It's just. It's a riot. It's a a riot in however many minutes and seconds this track is. To me, it's um, it's a, it was a ten out of ten track on on the album. You know, it's it, it's as good here as it was there. It's as good on if you want blood as it was on Let There Be Rock. So thirty two four nine fifty six gives way to Rock and Roll Damnation. And for me, um, this is fairly much a copy of the album track in terms of style, the uh, the tempo of this entire album, not wanting to give away my highs or my lows. This album, this track is when I go for a wee. No, surely not. Really? I, I, and I will give away my, my lows. Um, I'd, I'd have finished this album at at the end of track nine, frankly. That's when I'd have gone for a piss. Um, no, this is brilliant. This is this is a great version of Rock and Roll Damnation. Just again, it's the back line, isn't it? It's the it's, it's just lifted off 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 the vinyl. Yeah. It is lifted. It absolutely is it well, to the extent that it's about four seconds different, it is lifted off powerage. So which you know kind of echoes some of the points I was making earlier. If you like the live, if you like the studio album, you'll like the live version because it's really not a very different. And we're into the home straight, the final three with high voltage. And my goodness, the groove this song has got is just superb. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's it's a fantastic song. It's um, it's where this track takes off is um. During the interplay with the crowd, when um, he, he's doing his high and they're coming back with the voltage and then the whole thing, and it's um, again, it you know, it's, it's very evocative of a live show. And but he reaches he reaches levels during that where you just think he's actually going to explode. His his, his voice has gone so manic during that kind of rap with the crowd. It's like he's been gargling with razor blades or something. Um, it's so throaty. Nunnery fucking drank so much, it was to soothe his throat. Yeah, it's a it's a great version of a great track. Yeah, so track nine, Let There Be Rock. If uh, Steve's got his timer out, I would imagine this is ever so slightly shorter than the album version as well. Yeah. This is so raw. Again, I really hope this isn't overdubbed because I just feel that the, the rawness in this track is, uh, is, is just great. Uh, love it. It's a, track, it's, a track, it's a track they've done differently, isn't it? I was looking at Live at, at River Plate or whatever it's called, which was the 2009 tour, I think, wasn't it? It lasted over 18 minutes, and, and that's how I remember. Uh, it, it, they just, just went on and on. Because you, you, you can think of the thumping backbeat, you know, that, that, that accompanies, a, a, you know, Let There Be Rock live, which is it's just, it's just one of the, the all-time great metal tracks. I mean, we've already... Um, you know, we've already done "Let There Be Rock" the album in our in end to sadment, and um, yeah, I think it, it, did this get ten out of ten from all three of us? I don't know. It's 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 a ten out of ten track. 
all day long, live or otherwise. They trade on anticipation, though, don't they? A lot. It's, it, I suppose it's a contradiction, isn't it? It's, it's a, it's a, it's strange because when they're doing this live and they're extending it, and you've got yeah Angus doing the dying fly and teasing the audience with the odd note here and there and waiting for them. But what you're really, really waiting for is for them to drop kick back into the rim. Yeah. Yeah. There's a point at which I say, look, just we know what you're gonna do. Yeah. <laughs> just fucking get on with it. No, no, I dis I disagree. I'm with Mark on that. I love that sense of antis. I absolutely yeah. when you can see the three of them, you so you can see Will back in the day, Williams, Young and Rudd, just back there, just tapping their feet, shaking their heads, not going anywhere, and you can see them just gently prodding away while Angus is, you know, showing his ass and whatever else he's doing. And you're thinking, you know, and you, and, and you don't want it to happen. You just don't want it to happen, but you privately do. And then bang and, oh, yeah. They're, they're, just, they're fed, yeah. It's a phenomenal live moment. They're just feathering you, aren't they? And so, If You're On Blood finishes with track 10, which is The Rocker. It's a perfectly good song <laughs> it is just rock and roll isn't it uh, when i listen to this though i you picture yourself in that gig um and this is what towards the end of the set and it's just a rock and roll song but it's so mad and so fast that by now everybody's lost control it, it, it's it's too fast and it's too out of control that that's the problem for me <laughs> At this, by this point, I'm not a massive fan of Rocker. I think it's a perfectly good track, but I'm I'm loving every minute of this. I mean, it, it's just so nonsensically mad um, that you think, yeah, I can, I can go home to that. I, I can, you know, it saves me going out and having a fight like I normally do on a Saturday night because that's just perfect. That's that's my that's my energy level sapped. Okay, gents, we better move on to highs and lows, Steve. As you are the lover of live albums, I'm fascinated to know what yours are. Okay. Um, well, yeah, my low on all of that is, um, and it's not, yeah, it's, it's not a massive low. Rocker probably is a seven out of ten for me. Um, highs, um, well, just because it's a track I adore, and it, it's, they, they've done it justice on that album. Um, Let there be rock. And Mark, what about you? So, uh, yeah, The Rocker is, is the low point for me. Um, and Problem Child, Problem Child, without a doubt, is the standout track for me. Yeah, for me, I agree that The Rocker you know, doesn't quite hit the highs of the rest. And I can't get a cigarette paper between Let There Be Rock and Problem Child. Okay, so we're two albums down and one to go for our Rock Goddess homework. And we now move into the 90s, which is a surprise for Mark. And uh, Mark, um, you're going to introduce our final album of the evening from Mr. Hetfield and Co. Opening album sleeve notes. So Metallica made their first appearance on the podcast only a few weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. However, they're back and they're back with arguably the album that. Uh, has the greatest chance, I would suggest, of topping the Hall of Fame at the end of uh, this particular episode, whether it's still there 
or whether it gets there in the end, who knows? But if it is there, will it stay there? Who knows? But we are, of course, talking about their eponymously titled album, Metallica, or if you prefer, the Black Album. It was recorded between October uh, and June of 1990 and 1991 and released on August the 12th, 1991. Uh, so it only had a couple of, uh, couple of months of post-production. Um, it was released on Electra in the United States, Vertigo in the UK, and it runs in an hour and two minutes, 40 seconds. Producer? Controversially, Bob Rock took over from Fleming Rasmussen, who had been their kind of go-to guy, uh, certainly for the previous three albums. And, you know, it was it was not a happy ship at times, the recording of this album, but we'll get onto that, I'm sure. Um, they spent an awful lot of time, an awful lot of time at one-on-one studios in Los Angeles. In fact, they spent nearly nine months in the studio and anyone who's seen any of the uh, interviews with particularly with Lars and James, they were they just couldn't wait to get out of the studio. They had had an absolute guts full of this album by the time they finished the final tracks and laid down the final tracks and left Bob Rock and uh, Co to post-produce it. So um, not that they need any introduction, but uh, the lineup: James Hetfield, vocals and rhythm guitar, Kirk Hammett on lead, Jason Newstead on bass, finally gets his bass heard in this as well, Lars Ulrich on drums, uh, its highest chart position in the UK was number one. Uh, no surprise there. It spent 99 weeks on the chart, which on one level you think that is an absolutely amazing until you see how long it spent on the US Billboard Hot 100, uh, where it also reached number one. And it spent it has spent an incredible 583 weeks on the American album chart uh it sold 31 million copies worldwide that's physical sales only it doesn't include streaming or downloads and it was a double album uh when it was released on vinyl four sides three on side one and to stand sand yourself i knew i was going to do that call it the title of the podcast enter sandman sad but true and holier than now track uh, side two the unforgiven wherever i may roam don't tread on me Side three was through the Lem- through the never nothing else matters and of Wolfram Man and side four the God that failed my friend of misery and the struggle within it became one of the biggest albums of all time it is still one of the biggest albums of all time uh, it broke record after record after record after record and it has an incredibly um, special place i think in the hearts of more than 31 million people but let's start with two people who bought it which are the two people i'm sitting looking at chaps wax lyrical well i mean i just adored adore this album actually adore this album and um i've, I've been eagerly anticipating um this episode because um you know th- this this album just takes me back to a time when i thought heavy metal th- actually doesn't get any better than this and I've been proved right because it hasn't. This it just hasn't. Simple as that. And since we did, so when did we do Led, the top of our hall of fame? For anyone who doesn't know, Led Zeppelin four sits there. And when did we do Led Zeppelin four? Mark, what, what episode was that? Episode three. Episode right. Three. Since, since, and it's and it's set a high bar. And and since episode three, we've all been ticking off the albums that we think we know. And we've all privately or publicly said we know the big contender. We know where the big challenger come from. So we've reached that point. Um, in my mind. And, um, you know, it's really interesting that, you know, we've got Led Zeppelin 4 up there, which kind of came out at the dawn of 
heavy metal time and and said to everyone, right, this is this is this is music. Follow that. And for twenty years, no one could get anywhere near it. Many tried, many came close, and, and no one came clear it. No one came near it. Um, so we've effectively waited two decades for Metallica to close the circle and say, yeah, you know, we can do something every bit as good as that. Completely different genre and style and everything, but we are the fucking bollocks. And this album is off the scale compared to anything you'll have heard for a decade or so. Um, in, it, carrying on their improvement as a band, um, it just reached the point with this album where they went off in a different direction and to just hit as close to perfection as as they could get. I just, I just, I just think this is a, an insanely good piece of work. So I can remember the first time I heard Enter Sandman on the radio and it absolutely blew my mind. So despite everything from Metallica up to that point, um, I love them so much. But the first time I heard that track on the radio, I thought, oh, my God. Um, and I think um, the, the same goes for the, the rest of the album. The first time I put it on, um, that's track one. It was sad but true on track two. This is an absolutely immense album. And it's actually been quite hard to for me to go back and listen to it critically this last week. I think I've managed it, but my goodness, I mean, it, it, you know the track so well. And, and it, it, I mean, it, it is exactly as Steve said. It, it's like you know, when we, we went back to listen to Led Zeppelin four trying to really pull it apart track by track because that's what we we do here uh, for for this podcast that all of that aside this was a groundbreaking album absolutely groundbreaking i think i've gone back to it obviously over the last week um and i and i thought well you know what? i don't need to listen to it as much as the other albums because or uh, I don't need to listen to it as much as the Runaways, if we're being completely honest, because I know it so well. But but actually, it's, I, I found it really interesting coming back to the Black album because I rem- I also remember the first time I heard Enter Sandman, and uh, it was released as a single ahead of the album, and I got a promo copy of it because I was writing the the music column for the paper that I was working on at the time. And I, I remember I played it, I, I taped it onto a C90 back-to-back on both sides because I just absolutely loved it. And I, I you know, wanted to play it in the car, and, I, and so I put it on it. It was just literally on a loop. I think there are missteps on it, though. You know, I, I think there are, there are tracks where, you know, we'll come to this, but I, I think the ending is not as strong as the beginning, and I think there are one or two tracks in the middle that are misfire slightly so we'll get to that i think it is a phenomenal album i think it was a groundbreaking album i think it was the it was the album where metallica thanks in large members to the to their fifth member who you know let's be honest bob rock was was the the difference i think it was the album where where metallica were contenders and needed to be taken seriously musically so yeah absolutely agree with you colossal album is it perfect? No, it's not. So the album kicks off with Enter Sandman, and it, it's another it gives still gives me goosebumps 
you know, nearly 30 years on. So there's, there's, what can you say about this track that hasn't already been said by, you know, hundreds, thousands of people? It's beautifully constructed, wonderfully layered. The production on this album is absolutely astonishing. James Hetfield has never sounded better before or since, in my view. The whole band is as tight as it as as you like. Finally, we get to hear Jason's bass, which we didn't on Justice. This is a perfect song. This is a ten out of ten song every day of the week. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a whatever you were playing before on your stereo radio, whatever you put this on, you just you just whack the volume up straight away, and you're off to a different plane. This is an this is an eleven out of ten volume. This is Spinal Taps eleven. Um, because that you got that that instantly recognisable intro, and then the, 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 just the sheer meanness of it, and and that's a hallmark of the album. It just um, it's interesting what you were saying about production because this wasn't a spontaneous effort by any stretch of the imagination, was it? I mean, this this was the most insanely planned piece of work, and you almost wonder kind of how they got it sounding quite so sort of you know genuine and real uh, or maybe i don't know credit to them for, for for their musicianship um and for all the you know bitterness and i dare say there's plenty between rock and the band um yeah it sounds stunning it absolutely sounds stunning and and sets the template for every track that's to come it's just it just sounds like a really really slick piece of work but but not not over the top not not not, not affected in any way. It just just sounds brilliant, clean. I mean, you say you talk about the relationship Bob Rock had with the band. Uh, that, that there was a point, at, certainly at the beginning, where they couldn't stand each other um, because he was asking them to do stuff that just wasn't in their um, in the way that they normally did things. Now you look at the interviews; they're really close. They clearly, yeah, they've buried the past. They have huge amount of respect for one another and it's great but it, this was a, a really difficult album i think for them creatively and and technically and they go off to never never land uh, as does enter sandman uh to be followed uh by well is it the most brutal track on the album sad but true yeah oh, i mean you know if if you know, Enter Sandman's about nightmares and being proper scary and that. It is not anywhere near as scary as this motherfucker. Sad but true is 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 I just remember I remember when we when we saw them at um at Donington in ninety one. Um and th- so that's be- presumably before this was out. Is that right? Yeah, and, and they only, they played a couple of tracks, Enter Sandman and Sad But True. And and what did and James Hepfield said, Are you scared yet after this? And um and I thought, fuck me, yeah, I am. I genuinely am. You've actually, it's bright daylight in the middle of summer and you've scared the living shit out of me. It was, um, it is just so massively heavy and oppressive. An illustration of the evolution that Metallica were going through from kind of thrash to heavy. And it's just, oh, it's just gut bending. It's just brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely, it, it, and the pauses and everything about this song—it's just relentless. Um, you know, one ten follows another. Simple as that. Gut bending is a good <laughs> phrase. 
I mean, you are weighed down by lead listening to this. Uh, It's just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. The power in it, the punch. And and, and again, this production-wise, I remember putting this album on for the first time and, you know, I've got my big floor stander speakers and I mean, I was like Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future, blown through the room. <laughs> just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, uh, that that uh, that description, the, the weighed down, you are you're weighed down by hopelessness and despair, and every piece of percussive punctuation is a punch in the gut. It is absolutely brutal and brilliant. So, uh, Sabatru, track two, uh, and we come to the end of side one with Holier Than Thou. Um, and for me, this, this, is the, this is the first point where I'm not entirely with them. Uh, I, I struggled with this when the album first came out, and I discovered that I still struggle with it a bit, you know, 30 years later. That's really that's really interesting. Is I, I Bob Bob Rock reckon it should have been the first single. I mean, I don't know what planet he was on, but can you imagine this on Radio Two? Oh, I just, I just, I just, it's you know, from the from the cheeriness of Sad but True to uh, to, to the joys of Holier Than Now. It's, it's a brain splitting opening. Um, again, just so so heavy, and I love my heavy. I, 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 I this is this is. Where thrash meets heavy, and it just—it's just the the cocktail is intoxicating, absolutely intoxicating. I'm off with the fairies. I, I, I adore this song. It's just so fucking heavy, as all good reviewers would say. This album's got a mixture of modern Bob Rock Metallica and traditional Metallica, and this for me is a traditional Metallica song. I mean, it's heavy, it's fast, it's it's got a fantastic start, but then it, it kind of has this explosive start, and then it just then just carries on and doesn't really go anywhere for me personally. <laughs> it's five, five for you, Steve, but it's sandwiched in between sad but true and unforgiven, and I think that that's the the problem for me. Because I'm with Mark's comments earlier that I think there are some in here. Actually, I'll probably I'll probably stretch to three. That if you took off, this would nearly be a ten album. Uh, and I think this is one that for me, it's I mean, it's great. I mean, I've not I've not given it a low score, but it's had a couple of near perfect tracks before it, and it's got a perfect Metallica track after it. Holier than now. Um, is followed by uh, the Unforgiven, which came out the, the the film came out a year after this, and I can't believe that this wasn't. I don't know. I can't find anything about it, but it feels like this was written. It, it was rejected. Was it? It was rejected. So, it was- yeah, so, so they were asked to uh, to do uh, to a song to to essentially be the. Uh, a, a major song for the film, I'm presuming, probably the outtake, you know, the, so the end, yeah, the, the the credits, and it was yeah, not, not considered good enough. My God, is this more ground? Yes, more groundbreaking from Metallica than Enter Sad Man. I will wager. 
the one thing that catches my eye on this, and I can imagine the effort that James Hetfield has has, has put into singing a song which he's never sung better. And um, and if we go back to Kill 'Em All, which is a very unfair comparison, it's, it's they're two different people. But even as recently as you know, Justice, this is a very very different singer, a very accomplished singer, trying to be accomplished and succeeding. Certainly in this song and others. Um, but this song particularly, which is, again, a phenomenal piece of work, to be miserable and beautiful in equal measure. It's an, it's an astonishing achievement, this track. I, I don't know who wrote it. You probably do, Rich. But um, the, the idea that they've the, – the, the emphasis on perfection from, from, from every associate part is, is, is brilliant. And, and, to, and to discipline and drill them, even hardened musicians as they were at this stage – I think that's um, well. The testament to it is what you're listening to. Well, if it is his best vocal performance, it it, it is run very close by another song on this album, but not the next one, which is um, the epic um, song that does go somewhere. It's still about a journey, but it goes somewhere, unlike uh, unlike uh, Kashmir, Um, and that is uh, wherever I may roam, Um, which I think is just. I, I'm speechless, really. Just, where does this stuff come from? Where, how do they go from from justice to this? That has to be Bob Rock. It has to be. I mean, how do you do? It's a Middle Eastern intro yeah. into the biggest heavy slow riff, and then all of a sudden. You're in orbit. <laughs> yeah, no, this is a, this is another phenomenal piece of work that to, to to seamlessly drift between the ability to bounce and headbang is 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 an art is an art in itself, <laughs> and they pull it off here. Um, and also, uh, I, I, I love you know Rover Wanderer Nomad Vagabond. Call me what you want. It's just it's just an, it's just an instantly recognisable lyric. Almost as good as I ask no one. I defy any vocalist to deliver such an oh-so-simple and inoffensive lyric with quite so much menace. Um, I've I've written down that word. It is menacing, his vocals. It's so splendid. I love it. I just adore it. Another, another, you know, we're going to sound like a stuck record here. Um, But, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. So uh, Wherever I May Roam uh, is the last track on side two of uh, this four-sided album. Um, Incredible song. So, a song that um, it sounds really angry because they all do, but it's supposed to be really positive, isn't it? It's about um, – because there's a kind of that sort of pro-American feeling all the way through it. You know, you've got that um, – is it West Side Story, that, that – that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's it's quite a patriotic song, I think. I mean, not in a jingoistic way or a, or a nationalistic way, but so, again, such a brutal, measured song. That staccato, just fucking banging beat. That's just um, oh, it's, it's um. He- James Hetfield said he didn't like it originally, and, and they didn't perform it live for twenty odd years. I think wow. they wheeled it out. They wheeled it out at the. Um, um, Enter Sandman, uh, sorry, um, Black Album 20, 20th anniversary concert. And he said, Oh, yeah, that's actually pretty good, isn't it? 
there's a bit where he woofs, where James woofs in it, and which he also does in um, Seek and Destroy. And I love it when James woofs it because it signals an absolutely gut-wrenching riff is just about round the corner. After he woofs that super heavy riff they go into, it only lasts about four or six bars. Why the they put that in all the way through the song? And and what what so what what I don't understand. We'll come back to this. Is some of the weaker songs on this album is why did that they they had all the elements in them, but they did not mix them up and structure them in the way that they did on the better songs in the album. Does yeah. that make it? Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. There's two or three songs at the end which uh, I can. I mean, my friend Misery is the most obvious example of a. A moment that they just got it all wrong when they didn't have to, and it's um yeah for exactly that reason. But you know we'll come to that in due course. So, track two, side three. Um, yeah, we talked about James Hetfield's vocal performance on the Unforgiven. I think he gives himself a run for his money here, doesn't he? Nothing else matters. Can you remember? when you first listened to this album and this came on, because I, I didn't know what to do with myself. <laughs> no. My goodness. Um, yeah. I, I know exactly what you mean, because with... Um... Because if, if you compare it to those kind of slow burners that we've all heard before that started acoustically that Metallica did, like, you know, Fade to Black and, and Welcome Home and, uh, well, even One, um, but, but they pick up and go massive at some point. This, this is their ballad. This is, this is their first, I'll say their first and only, it's not, because they do some on loads, you know, um, but this is... They're ballad, and it's yeah, it's a crowd favourite. It's a talent piece. It's contrary to everything we expect from Metallica, and because of that, it makes it massively interesting. But of course, they do it so damn well. It's you know, it, it's it builds and it grows, but at, at, at their pace, it's and it becomes superbly intense. It's just it's just it's just really refreshing. I don't know what you guys think this. It, it, it's a bloke's ballad. This um, when I when I when I play this song, it brings me closer to you two, and it brings me closer to my brother. Um, so personally, this song means a hell of a lot to me. And side three closes off with "Of Wolf and Man." So "Of Wolf and Man" it's more traditional Metallica for me. Um, but the the dual riff, the dual guitars are superb in this. I like it. It's bouncy. It's heavy. Lyrically, it's interesting. And it's um, heavy metal misheard lyrics, isn't it? This one, because James is saying sheep shit. He is saying sheep shit. Yes, yeah, it's not shape shift. It's definitely sheep shit. Yeah, great song. Nice, relentless riff. Enough going on to make it interesting. It's not just going in one direction. It's moving around like we expect from Metallica and enjoy. So, yeah, great song. So the next track, The God That Failed. 
And uh, Jason, given that we uh, faded out your bass on the entire the last album, we thought you'd give you a couple of bars on your own. But then we'll just come in and we'll piss all over it with our guitars for the rest of the song. I don't know why this song is on here. Isn't it? It's super heavy. Super and heavy in the same sentence. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm, well, yeah, I, I think it's one of the most, un, I say it's underrated, you clearly disagree. I think it's, um, you know, spleen-savagingly heavy, which is, you know, just what they do and what they do well. I love that um, Newstead intro, and I wish we'd heard more of it. But, um, yeah, slow, heavy, and ugly, as James Hetfield described it. Um, and that's, exact, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, I like it a lot. The thing for me, I mean, it, as Mark said earlier, that physical graffiti moment, right? This song could have been so much better if they paid more attention to the bits. You had this superb bass line at the start. It appears at the start. It never appears again. Why didn't they split it up and have these moments where it went back to the bass and the drums? So I actually think in a lot of the songs, and this is a perfect example on this album, if they'd had the structure, the attention in the different uh, light and dark and the different parts that they had to everything else, to, to some of the bigger tracks on this album. So penultimate track on the album, My Friend of Misery. It's just, this song infuriates me so much. This is a 10 out of 10 track all the way for four minutes, 50 seconds. It is a 10 out of 10 masterpiece, an utter joyous masterpiece. Well, joyous, it ain't joyous. It's a masterpiece. It does what it says on the tin. It's pure fucking misery. I adore that Jason Newstead bass line. Um, he gets the songwriting credit here. We know what a good songwriter he is from, you know, Flotsam and Jetsam days. One man's fun is another, and is another's hell. I just, I just, I just love the grimness and the, and the misery and the pain and the anguish of this whole landscape on this track. It's so dark, so fucking dark. But it, at the end, it just completely loses direction. Just when you want it to keep going at this relentless, joyously pained pace, and and you know, I'm 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 crying. I'm I'm welling up listening to it. And by the end of it, I'm I'm dancing a jig. It goes wrong at the end. It goes so wrong at the end. It loses its way completely around around the sort of four and a half five minute mark. And we see the album out with The Struggle Within, which is another cheery track. It's got a very militaristic start with the drum drum beat, the original drums. Um, and then we get into fairly familiar Metallica territory fairly quickly, don't we? On this album, it's filler for me. Steve? Yeah, a trick or two missed with this one. Um, yeah, you, you made the point earlier, Rich, about things they did little vignettes that, that 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 cropped up in songs that they just kind of should have run with a bit, like like the Newstead's bass line in the previous song. And there's there's an occasion here um, after James Hetfield, you know, there's a big shout of go and we're off into a, a riff that lasts a few seconds and it could have lasted for half an hour. It's that good. And it does, it just, it's just lost um, within the construct of the track. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This song is absolutely brilliant. It's a, it's a, 12 out of 10 song at 2 minutes 57 until two until 3 minutes. And then the rest of it, you know, that, that riff, that tiny micro riff that we get 
And and I remember the first time I heard this album, getting to this point in it and thinking, shit, why didn't they just do that all the way through it and make it about six days long? And I would have been really happy. But yeah, the the, the beauty of of the Black Album is that it's an album you're always going to come back to. You know, you'll always listen to it when you so there we go uh highs and lows let's do those before we disappear off uh into scoresville uh steve okay well i'm looking i'm looking down my scores I, I this is extraordinary so i've written about this song that is my low arguably the most underrated overlooked track on the album and that's my low and that's the god that failed <laughs> um so that's where we are so which of the tens do i like best well, I've always, I've always said it, and I stand by it. It's, it just, just makes me smile. It probably should make me frown, but it makes me smile, and that's sad but true. I think for a low, it's between. Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. Um, probably misery and the struggle within. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, my absolute high is unforgiven. Okay, so my low. God That Failed has been since August of 1991 and it still is today and uh, the high I just don't think you can I can ever get get, get away from how I felt the first time I heard Enter Sandman so yeah um, those are my highs and lows let's um, we also go and score these now and see where they end up in the Hall of Fame so let's uh, let's head over uh, and do that Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, so that was a blast. Three really good albums, or really interesting albums. The Runaways Waiting for the Night, ACDC, If You Want Blood, and Metallica's Metallica. Um, I kicked this off earlier with uh, Waiting for the Night, as I said, with The Runaways, 1977, and the scores were thus. Um, Well, I marked it 6.65. Mark marked it 6.54. Rich marked it 6.9. So not a lot between any of us, really. And um, for a final total of 6.69. Yeah. So, yeah, it always felt like a sub-seven album, if I'm honest. Um, Any surprises there? No, I don't think so. That's pretty much what I expected it to be. Maybe maybe a little higher, actually. Okay. Yeah. Um, Okay. So ACDC, if you want blood. Okay, so for if you're on blood, I scored it an 8.25. Mark scored it an 8.39. And Steve gave it a 7.9, and that gives it an overall score of an 8.18. That's a higher score from you, Steve, than I was expecting, I have to say. Seriously, is that what you thought? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I thought, yeah, you know, because it was a live album, I know how much you, you know, you, I, I know why, and I know, and I, you know, I understand why you, you have an aversion to it. So, yeah, that's that's a pretty high score for a live album from you. That's what I would say. Yeah, well, to be fair, I gave over seven to Strangers in the Night. So maybe we've just picked the two far and away the two best live albums that have been thus far. So, yeah. but Maybe, maybe. Uh, so moving on then to um, Metallica, um, probably no great surprises here so steve you gave it seven uh 8.79 um far far and away actually the the, the, the highest of the three of, 
three of us, uh, I gave it an 8.4. Richard, you gave it an 8.21-ish. Uh, to give it an overall average album score of 8.46667. So that is, in the context of what we're doing, that is a big score, isn't it? Yeah, it's massive. It's a big, big score, isn't it? It's the um, highest score we've had for a while. So I guess uh, we know what they scored. Time to go over and see where that landed them in the now 60-strong Hall of Fame. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. So where have these albums figured in our 60-strong Hall of Fame? Well, I feel slightly deflated, but I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, the Runaways Waiting for the Night have come in at 50 with 6.69. They are one of 11 bands now that have scored under seven. And as I say, I'm not the least bit surprised by that. If You Want Blood is into the top 10 at number nine with 8.18, right next door to uh, um, Let There Be Rock. By the same band so again that doesn't surprise me it always it always smacked of a top 10 album notwithstanding my aversion to the general aversion towards live albums it's just a great album um so my deflation stems from the fact that i've, I've been waiting so long to anoint metallica at the top of our fame and it's third it's third behind led zeppelin 4 and indeed machine head by D uh, by deep purple um with its 8.4667, it's a, you know, Nat's piss behind the other two, but it is behind them nonetheless. And I blame you two, you bastards. I, I genuinely thought we would be talking about Metallica at the top of the tree today. I mean, if I'm being honest, I, I don't find, I think the biggest surprise to me is that if you want blood is as high as it is. Um, I mean, I'm not surprised it's high, but I'm, I'm surprised it's in the top 10. I didn't, Probably didn't expect it to, to to quite get there, but it has. Um, uh, I'm not surprised at all. Like you, Steve, I'm not surprised by the Runaways. I think it's a really. I, I enjoyed listening to it. I think it's a good album. Uh, I'm sure um, that uh, that Jody and Julie Turner will be happy to know that we think they're better than their heroes. Um, Metallica, yeah, I, that that. I, I if not top, I would have expected it to be two, but. There you go. That's the point of all of this, isn't it? That's the point of doing what we do the way we do it in the end. So, yeah, it, it, with with Metallica, I, I, I was quite surprised as well that it didn't make the top. Um, but I think it shows our rules around you've got to be consistent and um, the physical graffiti rule of don't throw everything in. Uh, we talked earlier about Metallica being 12 tracks long. Um, and what I've done is I've just added up, I think, our scores, our average scores between the three of us for the top 10 tracks. And if uh, we'd averaged the those top 10 tracks on Metallica, it would have an average score of 8 Point seven seven. Yeah, proves the point. Proves the point, doesn't it? Yeah, they stayed in the studio too long. Yeah, yeah. That, that eight point seven, it would have put them, you know, with quite a lot in this context, quite a lot of clear blue water between them and Zeppelin Four. Yeah. So there we go. Three uh, three albums that have won their place in the Hall of Fame: uh, Metallica, 
the album that I think the three of us all secretly thought would be at the top is not at the top. It's at number three. So uh, Led Zeppelin four lives to fight another day. As do we. The Internet Sad Men podcast will be back uh, in a week or so. Until then, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you soon.